Father God, we come to you once again in the name of Christ. Lord, we know, we believe that we can't come to you too often in prayer. As men and women made of clay feet, we live in need every minute of every day. Every breath we draw, every thought we have depends upon you. And so as we open your word and begin to try by the power of your spirit to to understand your word by faith in a way that will make us more like Christ, we do so with great humility, with reverence, and even with trembling. It is no idle thing to open your word. So as we do so, we ask that you would grab hold of our hearts and incline them heavenward, Godward. As we ask every week, drown out the noise of life, the worries, the fears, the cares, the responsibilities, all those things that are there, are real, are important, but can seek to distract us during this time. We ask that you would silence them, that we would be singularly focused on you, that you would open our eyes, that we would behold your glory, your wonder, your beauty, your excellency, your majesty. Let us behold our God during this time. We seek to see the glory of you, Jesus. We ask that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, unite us here now collectively as one body in one spirit to fear your name. Knowing that we would rightly fear you, God, we need not fear the world or anyone in it. All of us come here, Lord, having had different weeks, different days, but with one great need to be fed, to be satisfied by your living word, by which we receive grace in your steadfast love. So feed us now, satisfy us now. Lead us into truth in a world full of lies. Lead us into truth so that even misunderstandings that we've had, wrong beliefs that we've had would be revealed and truth would reign in our hearts. I ask, Father, that the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight. Holy Spirit, do here now in this time what only you can do. That is, open the eyes of the blind. Create dead hearts to beat as living hearts. Take us who are in Christ and raise us into more maturity in Christ-like conformity. Perhaps there are some here who are slumbering, have been complacent. Convict, admonish, Lord. There are some of us here who are downcast and weary. We ask that you would encourage and renew. There are those of us full of zeal, Lord. Help our zeal be according to knowledge. We pray all these things in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. Well, if you take your copy of God's word this morning and turn to the gospel according to Luke, we are going to be looking at verses chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, but we're going to be in this passage for the next two weeks. It's not a two-part message, but there's two messages here that are very intimately connected. In this passage, we'll read in a moment, we see the birth of Jesus foretold, the Messiah, the birth of the Messiah foretold. And next week, we will look at the substance of the message of 
Christ coming. But this morning, what I want us to do is to focus our attention on the mother of Jesus Christ, Mary. Now, perhaps some of us may be thinking, why are we devoting an entire morning message to Mary? I hope to make that very clear here in a few short minutes. But before we do so, let us read God's word, and then we'll jump in. Starting at verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and was pondering what kind of greeting this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And there will be no end of his kingdom. But Mary said to the angel, How will this be since... I am a virgin. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. A beautiful passage with so much truth. Well, I want to begin by reading a series of quotes about Mary. First quote is by St. Francis de Sales. Quote, let us run to Mary and has her and as her little children cast ourselves into her arms with a perfect confidence. Unquote. Saint Alphonsus Maria de Liguri said, quote, Mary, having cooperated in our redemption with so much glory to God and so much love for us, our Lord ordained that no one shall obtain salvation except through her intercession, end quote. Mother Teresa, quote, If you ever feel distressed during your day, call upon Our Lady. Just say this simple prayer. Mary, Mother of Jesus, please be a mother to me now. I must admit this prayer has never failed me. End quote. Pope Francis, quote, the Christian who does not feel that the Virgin Mary is his or her mother is an orphan. End quote. Last quote, Pope Pius IX, quote says, the foundation of all our confidence is found in the Blessed Virgin Mary. God has committed to her the treasury 
of all good things, in order that everyone may know that through her are obtained every hope, every grace, and all salvation. For this is his will, that we obtain everything through Mary. End quote. I could stand up here for the next 45 minutes reading quote after quote after quote regarding Mary, the mother of God. We're not going to do that. The reality is that that was enough there to let us know that there is a lot of confusion and unbiblical teaching surrounding this very important, glorious woman named Mary. Mary, who was given the greatest privilege probably that any woman has ever had to give birth to the Messiah. Often in Protestant circles, we look, we actually diminish Mary as a response to the false teaching and abuses. Mary is a beautiful, shining example of faithfulness, we'll see. But what these quotes attribute to Mary results in false teaching, and this false teaching dishonors who Jesus is, diminishes the gospel. I would say not diminishes the gospel, throws the gospel out the window. And so it's very important for us, as we begin this series in Luke, to spend some time looking at Mary, especially because out of all the gospels, Luke is the one that gives the most favorable view of Mary and the most information. Many of us have family members who have a wrong view of Mary. Some of us maybe have come out of the Roman Catholic Church who has an unbiblical view of marriage, of Mary. And in this McHenry community, if we were going to attribute any faith group to, to McHenry, McHenry County, it would be Roman Catholicism. So this, uh, this wrong understanding of Mary is very important for us to address. And what I want us to see this morning is that Mary is a powerful and beautiful example of faithfulness and submission to God, but she is not to be venerated. So we're going to work through uh, a couple of the sections here that are referring to Mary in this passage. Our first point this morning is Mary the young woman. You could say that Mary was a small town girl. Now, some of you thinking the song. <laughs> Our passage this morning begins in a very similar fashion to the one we saw last week about Zechariah. In that, God, in his sovereign providential plan, sends the angel Gabriel to deliver a message to a person. Last week, the angel Gabriel went to Jerusalem, delivered the message to uh, Zechariah that they would bear a son in their old age, or that son would be John the Baptist. Now Gabriel visits Mary in Nazareth. The reason I say Mary is a small town girl is that Nazareth was a very small town. There's no reference to it in the Old Testament. Only within the last, I believe, hundred years has archaeological evidence even um, been found to show that Nazareth was a true place during the biblical times. It was estimated that Nazareth only made up a couple hundred people. In John's gospel, we see that Nazareth isn't even looked upon very favorably. In John chapter 1, verse 46, 
we'll read 45 uh, for context. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? This is the contrast to Zechariah. Zechariah was in Jerusalem. So understanding Nazareth, one could understand that Mary seems to be a woman who comes from very humble means. She probably would not have received much education. She probably wouldn't have been very literate. Her knowledge of the word of God would have been to whatever she was taught by oral tradition. She would have been just a peasant girl. Nothing about Mary would have struck anyone as exceptional. Had the angel Gabriel not interrupted her life, she would have had a typical life of every other peasant girl there. Ordinary, unrecognized. She'd have children who would be not all that educated, blue collar. And they would have done the same and the same and the same. And it just would have been that just perpetually. Her life would have been like that of all the young peasant girls that came before her. But God had different plans for Mary. And he sends the angel who divinely interrupts her life. And it's worth noting, we'll see more next week. God uses a small town girl to give birth to the cosmic king. The king of kings comes from a town that nobody really thought much of. Now we see here in the sixth month, that's talking about the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel shows up to her in Nazareth. And in verse 27, it says, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name is Joseph. Now, the word virgin here is talking of a young woman who has not had sexual relations with a man. It's a term that would never have probably been used to describe a married woman. So it's highlighting that she's not married. We'll see next week why the virgin birth of our Lord matters. And it says betrothed. And betrothed would mean, I guess you can say engaged, but it's a little stronger than our understanding of engagement. But during those times, a woman would typically become betrothed very early in the teen years. So Mary is somewhere between 13 and 16 years old. Uh, church tradition has her at 14. This engagement period, this betrothal period would have been a year. And during that time, Joseph would be preparing a place for her. And Mary would be showing her, her commitment and fidelity to Joseph. Now, I said that betrothal was more serious than our understanding of engagement today, because to be betrothed was as good as to be married. Only death or divorce could end a betrothal. In Matthew's gospel, when Jesus is talking about about divorce, um, it's referring, most scholars believe, to this betrothal period. So serious was betrothal that if the man were to die, the woman would be considered a widow. So in these two verses, this is what we see about Mary's, who she is and her station of life. Now, 
when you think about that, it's extremely humbling. Not how you would think God would bring his son, the king, into the world. He uses a small, young, no-name girl from Nazareth. But if you sit there for a moment and just meditate on that, it tells us something very important about God. God doesn't look down from his throne and say, I can only use the powerful. I can only use the rich. I can only use the highly educated. I can only use those who have a good social network of influence. No, God doesn't operate that way. God can pick a small peasant girl from a no-name town to accomplish wondrous purposes that will ring throughout human history into eternity. You simply need to be a follower of Christ. You simply need to be a follower of Yahweh, as Mary would have understood it at this moment. You simply need to have had humility and ask the Lord for forgiveness of sin and seek to live a life in submission and obedience. So as a church, if you and I want to be used by God, then first we must trust in him. Secondly, we must submit to him. Thirdly, we should chase after him. I say chase after him because so often we are chasing everything but God. We're chasing the things that we think are impressive to the world. And without realizing, we think it's going to impress God. Well, I have so, I, I've, I've, I have a powerful platform. God can really use me now. Look at the people I can reach. This is why we get so excited when we see a celebrity or an athlete or some prominent figure even begin to show faith in Christ. Wow, with their platform, what can God do with them? God did more through a peasant woman than he's done through any big name celebrity. Well, I have so much money. What can God, look what God can use this for. Yes, except the riches are usually the most stingy when it comes to the work in the church. The highly educated are so smart, they're useless half the time. The popular care more about themselves than the fame of Christ. God often uses the most humble and simple of people because they recognize who they are. They recognize who God is. And it is undeniable when God uses a, a small teen peasant girl to bring out the Messiah, that it is a sovereign work of a glorious God. So chase after the Lord. If you are having a position of power, if you have riches, if you have great education, if you have, that's not bad. But don't begin to think that because of that, God can use you more powerfully than he can use a simple person. In front of God, we're all simple people. We must humble ourselves before the Lord. So we see this is who this young Mary is. A small town girl in her early teens. Unmarried, pure, and betrothed. But this is where things get complicated and where these quotes I started off with come to uh, the surface. So many of us know someone who's Roman Catholic. Many of us... Some of us in here have been Roman Catholic. 
Um, I remember early on the Lord saved me. I desperately wanted to go Roman Catholic. I would go up to Marytown and meet with priests. I had read through the Roman Catholic Catechism many times. So please hear the this second point that we're going to work through, not as someone who's being uh, snarky or hard-hearted and looking down, as much as somebody who very much felt the draw of Rome, but also lacked the biblical foundations for me to conjure. My question before all of you is this. What do you actually believe about Mary? How much do you know about her? Our second point is Mary, a recipient, not a source of grace. This is very important to see this distinction. Mary, a recipient, not a source of grace. Some of you might be able to just start repeating after me as I start here. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou, art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now at the hour of our death. Amen. Many of us know that. Many of us have prayed that on the rosary. This is the most dominant understanding of Mary right here. Most people think Mary, they think this prayer. This is a conversation I remember having for hours on end with my father-in-law. I want to just, just at the outset, two major issues in this prayer of, of Mary. The first is to say, Hail Mary, full of, full of grace. Essentially, full of grace is what we're going to be unpacking in this entire second point. But what it means is that Mary was redeemed from her conception. So she was born already redeemed. She was born free from the stain of sin. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says these two following statements. First, section 491. Through the centuries, the church has become ever more aware that Mary, full of grace through God, was redeemed from the moment of her conception. That is what the dogma of the Immaculate Conception confesses, as Pope Pius IX proclaimed in 1854. It's a relatively new thing. The most blessed Virgin Mary was from the first moment of her conception, by singular grace and privilege of the Almighty God, and by virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of the human race, preserved immune from all the stain of original sin. They're saying Mary was born without a need for a Savior. She was born already redeemed. Section 508. From among the descendants of Eve, God chose the Virgin Mary to be the mother of his son. Full of grace, Mary is the most excellent fruit of redemption. From the first instant of her conception, she was totally preserved from the stain of original sin. And she remained pure from all her personal sins throughout her life, end quote. It's interesting. If you did a search of that phrase, full of grace, would Mary pop up? No. That phrase, full of grace, appears twice. 
The first instance is in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Which makes sense, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, because the Lord Jesus is the source, the fountainhead of all grace. He is the one who dispenses grace to people. The second instance that you would see that would be Acts chapter 6, verse 8. This is speaking in regards to Stephen. Acts 6, 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Here, this is talking about Stephen being filled with the Holy Spirit of God, which is God pouring his grace into Stephen to work in and through Stephen. We will look more about this in a few moments, but those are the only two instances where this appears. So we cannot say that Mary was born already redeemed and free from the stain of sin. Now, Mary, is she holy? Of course, Mary's holy. But so are we. Every single person who has trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ has been saved by God, has been set apart from God. To be set apart is to be called holy. This is why the people of God are referred to as saints. Saints aren't something that happens after you perform miracles. Saints is what you become when God performs the miracle of redemption in your life. We'll touch on this in more detail, but notice this. That in this prayer, you're asking Mary to be your intercessor, your mediator, which is unbiblical. It's diminishing to Jesus. So let's tackle some of these beliefs that are embedded in that prayer. The first that she, Mary, is free from the stain of sin, that she did not have a sin nature. I'm going to read multiple sections from the Catholic Catechism here because it's important to understand what so many believe. And again, I want to just put this out there. The reason this is so important for us as a church to work through is because more of a, we're more influenced by the view of Mary than we realize. So not free, Mary was not free from the stain of sin. Section 966 from the Catholic Catechism, quote, Finally, the Immaculate Virgin, preserved free from all stain of original sin, when the course of her earthly life was finished, was taken up, body and soul, into heavenly glory, and exalted by the Lord as the queen over all things, so that she might be be the more fully conformed to her son, the Lord of Lords, the conqueror of sin and death. The assumption of the Blessed Virgin is a singular participation in her son's resurrection and an anticipation of the resurrection of other Christians. End quote. So what that's saying is that we look to Mary. One, she's free from sin, right? She was taken up into heaven. She's the queen of heaven, which is not biblical language. And that she herself is our hope of the resurrection. There's a lot there. Let's tackle this free from sin thing. 
If Mary was free from the sin, uh, the stain of sin, if she didn't have a sin nature, Mary needs no savior. And if Mary needs no savior, it could be argued, why is Jesus the redeemer of humanity and not Christ? Mary could be the redeemer. But Mary herself does say she needs a savior. In Luke chapter 1, verses 46 and 47, which we will tackle in coming weeks, Mary's magnificence says, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior. Seems that Mary disagrees with the position of the Roman Catholic Church here. Mary is not our mediator. Catholic Catechism, section 969, quote, This motherhood of Mary in the order of grace continues uninterruptedly from the consent which she loyally gave at the Annunciation and which she sustained without wavering beneath the cross until the eternal fulfillment of the elect. Take, taken up to heaven, she did not lay aside this saving office, but by her manifold intercession continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. Therefore, the Blessed Virgin is invoked in the church under the titles of advocate, helper, benefactress, and mediatrix, end quote. Pope Leo XIII said that it is through Mary that the mercies of God come to his people. God's given us an advocate. It's called, he's called the Holy Spirit. The Bible is absolutely clear. There is only one mediator between man and God. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy chapter two, verse five, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Mary is not a mediator. Mary is a sinner saved by grace. Mary is not an advocate. The Holy Spirit is the advocate. If you wanted to talk about intercession, you could even say, that Christ, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, intercedes for us. We see that in Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Romans 8, 26. And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. Interesting in there, it talks about Mary, it says... She loyally, the consent which she loyally gave at the Annunciation, what they are saying is that Mary gave permission to Gabriel. So this is what's considered her fiat. Section 973 of the Catholic Catechism says that this, by pronouncing her fiat at the, Annunci at the Annunciation and giving her consent to the Incarnation, Mary was already collaborating with the whole work her son was to accomplish. She is mother wherever he is savior and head of the mystical body, end quote. So what they're saying is, in, in, in birth, when the angel Gabriel appears to her, 
In verse 38, Mary's response, behold, the slave, the slave of the Lord, may it be done to me. They take that to be a command where she is now giving permission to Gabriel for this all to take place. And out of that, they say that she is a co-redeemer, that she's collaborating. It's a salvation's a partnership. Mary and Jesus brought the good news, not simply Jesus. She's a co-redeemer in a sense. Think about the implications. Mary, therefore, had the power by her response to actually hold off the redemptive work of Christ. Now, the Catholic Church would say that this wouldn't actually happen because Mary's the only one who was born free from sin. So Mary had to be the one. Only she could carry the Messiah. But you see, they're saying that Mary, God is asking Mary to do this through Gabriel. And Mary has the power within herself to say yes or no. That verse 38 is not Mary giving consent, it is Mary submitting, which we'll see in greater detail in our third point. Now, this idea that Mary is our hope of the resurrection, section 974, Catholic Catechism, quote, The most blessed Virgin Mary, when the course of her earthly life was completed, was taken up body and soul into the glory of heaven, where she already shares in the glory of her son's resurrection, anticipating the resurrection of all members of his body. So Mary already has all the glories of a resurrection. And that she is the hope of the church's resurrection. Where does God's word say this? Nowhere. Mary is not our hope. Of the resurrection. Mary's hope for the resurrection is the same. Our hope for the resurrection. Christ in Christ alone is our hope for resurrection. Because this is what the Bible proclaims. Rome, turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Go over two chapters to Romans chapter 8, verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The Lord Jesus Christ is the hope of our resurrection, not Mary, the mother of Christ. Again, as we're working through this here, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm in no way trying to diminish who Mary is. I'm actually trying to elevate properly who she is. She is not our hope of the resurrection. There are so many other aspects of wrong beliefs surrounding Mary. Time is not going to allow us to go into all those.
there's no way for us to know, but I would, I have often wondered if there was a way for Mary to hear what is being said about her, how would she respond? This young girl of 13, 14 years old seems to have more reverency for the Lord than so many do. Now, I want us to be charitable as we think about this, though. Extremely charitable. This is the teaching, the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. With that being said, many who adhere to the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church have never truly looked deeply into the teachings, have never done Bible studies and, and looked into scripture. So let's not get smug. Let's not be condescending. How can you believe that? No. This is what so many are taught from infancy upward. In certain parts of the world, to be Roman Catholic is part of your identity culturally. So even as we think through this and you start thinking about people who have these beliefs, understand this is an entire worldview. And so it has to be, these conversations need to be done with compassion and understanding. We need to be charitable. And there are things we have wrong in our belief systems of the Lord. And we would want people to be charitable with us. But the implication here is if people once being shown in the word of God that these teachings are unbiblical and to continue to adhere to these views of Mary, then we have to say that more than likely they do not have true saving faith. And the reason I would say that is because to hold those views of Mary is to have a wrong view of Christ. You cannot be saved by the blood of Christ and think Mary is a co-redeemer with him. It's impossible. You cannot see Mary as free from sin and say that Jesus is the savior of the world. You cannot hold to the doctrine of original sin and hold to the view of the immaculate conception. And even that's interesting. I know lots of brothers and sisters in the Protestant faith who you think the immaculate conception is simply referring to the virgin birth. It's not. The Immaculate Conception is talking about Mary being born free from sin already redeemed. Mary is not a source of grace. When it says here in Luke, favored one, in verse 28, and in verse 30, you have found favor with God. What this is saying is that Mary is a recipient of God's grace. She wasn't chosen because of some virtue in her, some meritorious thing within her, some worthiness that resided in Mary. No, she was chosen because God in his grace simply wanted to choose this unknown 13, 14-year-old peasant girl in Nazareth. Favored here speaks to the unmerited kindness of God in these verses. What makes Mary favored by God? The fact that she was chosen by God. She has been graced by God. And again, the greatest privilege in her womb to carry for nine months. The Savior of the world. 
Now we see similar language to what's said here in Ephesians chapter one. So I want us to see this language that's being used by Gabriel in his conversation with Mary is not a one-off. We see similar language in Ephesians chapter one, verse six. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. So we see God bestowing his grace on individuals. Just as God bestowed grace, bestowed favor on Mary, he bestows favor on all who have bent the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, confessed their sins, repented, and trusted. God's grace and favor is throughout the New Testament, and it is always tied to freely being given, never earned, because if it was earned, it wouldn't be grace. So church, all of life is grace. All of life is grace. God bestows saving grace, sanctifying grace, and other graces in the lives of believers. I've experienced graces from Christ that you haven't, that are more certain in circumstances, and you have received grace from the Lord in circumstances that I haven't, but it's all of grace. None of it's deserved. None of it's earned. God graciously chose Mary, and I thank her for that. God sovereignly elected. We see sovereign election here of Mary. He elected her unto salvation. He elected her unto being the mother of Christ. Older documents call Mary the mother of God, and that's a good statement to the extent that we realize she's the mother of God and that she carried him into the world in his human nature, not that somehow she participated or his divinity was given to her, to him through her. Our final point that I want to spend some time on is her response to all this. We've seen Mary, the young woman. We've seen Mary, the recipient of God's grace. And now we're going to see Mary, the slave of the Lord. Our message today will be a little shorter because uh, once the message is over and service is over, I want to leave time to maybe for us to ask, answer questions because I know they're, is lots of uh, individuals in here that have been surrounded by these teachings. So I want to leave time for that as well. Um, but I want us now to focus on verse 38 here. Mary, the slave of the Lord, a third point. And Mary said, Behold, the slave of the Lord may be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Picture of humility. And submission. Mary refers to herself as a slave. Some translations would render it a servant of the Lord, but it is the Greek word for slave. There is a world of truth summarized in that one word. To talk about what it means to be a slave of the Lord would be a sermon series. But we can simply for today say, to be a slave of the Lord means that you are not your own. That you were bought with a price. That you have a master over you. That you are owned. In Romans, we see that you are either a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness. 
that by faith in Christ, you become a slave of Christ. What society sees as an offensive word, we should see as a beautiful word. Because it means that we are under the care, the control, the ownership of the one who will always protect, always provide, always provide, preside, do all things for our good. To be a slave of Christ is to be in the best place possible. Because everybody's a slave of something or someone. Everybody, apart from slave to, being a slave to Christ, is a slave to sin. Sin makes you think you're free, but it has some serious shackles on you. That you and I are to be humble in submission to our God, who is our master, is a great joy and privilege. So let's think about Mary here. Let's use a little bit of historical imagination. This is a young girl. Her whole life ahead of her. I didn't know what it would have been like to be a young Jewish girl. What hopes and dreams of a young Jewish girl in Nazareth with no real money or means. But she had some kind of hopes and dreams. Had, she had things she was looking forward. She's engaged to Joseph. Maybe she's wondering how she's going to decorate, how many kids they're going to have, what it's going to be like. I'm sure she's nervous. Joseph's, from what we're told in Scripture, especially in Matthew's Gospel, is a good man, a God-fearing man. So she's marrying pretty good. Guy's got character. Tells us that the angel was sent from God and that he comes inside the house. It says in verse 20, and coming in. She's in this house. She's in this room. And an angel appears before her. A word of comfort is given to her, just like Zechariah. Do not be afraid. He wants to reassure her. The unexpected happens. Things like this don't happen to 13-year-old peasant girls. Maybe if it's going to happen, Zechariah, that makes sense. He's a priest. So I know God's been silent, but if he's going to show up, Zechariah would be the guy. But not me. I'm a 13-year-old girl. Is what Mary's thinking. How is this happening? She's perplexed. She's confused. He delivers this message that's going to change everything. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and his name shall be Jesus. What are you talking about? How is this going to happen? I'm a virgin. I'm not married. The story takes a dramatic turn. A miracle is going to take place, Mary. That's what the angel tells her. God will create this child in your womb, apart from sexual relations with a man. He will do this by his Holy Spirit. And a good rule of thumb, we don't exactly know how that happens. And so we were, God is silent, we should be silent. But the God who said, let there be light, could easily say, let there be a child in this womb. So the Holy Spirit brings about a child in her. It's astounding. We tend to read that passage 
can be overwhelmed with joy. But have we ever stopped to process what that means for Mary? That's awesome, Mary. You're going to give birth to Messiah. You should go celebrate, run around the street, tell everybody. That's not how that works. First of all, who's going to believe her? See, in our culture, teen pregnancy is so common that we don't recognize we've lost what the scandal this would be. First, Mary, we need to go tell Joseph. Imagine that conversation. Hey, honey. Um, It sounds crazy, but God did a thing. I'm sure Joseph's going to be like, tell me more. Is he going to believe me? Is he going to think I ran around behind his back? Would he divorce me? Is he going to report this? What is going to happen? Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, we know that Joseph truly considered divorcing her secretly. By God's intervention, he didn't. Again, we see something there of the character of Joseph. He wanted to do it secretly, not publicly to shame her. Then Mary needs to go tell her parents. Mom, dad, I promise it's not what you think. That's a rather hard conversation. Are they going to believe her? Mary would definitely be concerned. Is this going to be shame and reproach upon our family? Nazareth is only a couple hundred people. Everybody's going to know. There won't be one part of Nazareth that can go where people won't know. Are her friends going to leave her and abandon her? We don't want to be associated with this scandalous woman. Can be shunned from the community? And potentially even she could have been put to death. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 23 and 24. No, I'm sorry. That's the wrong passage. I'm sorry. I was in Genesis. This was punishable by death in God's law. Deuteronomy 22, verses 23 and 24. If there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out of the gate of that city and you shall stone them and they will die. You're serious. Are you going to do that to me, maybe, Mary thinking? Yes, it's a great honor that she will carry the Messiah, but it comes at an extremely great cost. Knowing all that, she says, Behold, the slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. Every time I read that, I'm just in awe at the faith, at the trust that this young woman has. She doesn't question. She doesn't complain. She doesn't express fear. She doesn't express concern. She simply stares at the angel Gabriel and submits to the word of God. And she doesn't say, okay, listen. She says, a slave of the Lord. She recognizes that no matter what it's going to cost her, no matter what's going to happen, my position before the one true and holy God is that of a slave. How dare I lift up my voice not agree with this. 
And with that profession that Mary makes there, everything that Mary had ever hoped for or dreamed about in this life died. It was the death of Mary's life, the life she thought she'd have. She quietly submits the sovereign hand of God, not knowing at all what the future holds. So with that, I want us to take a step back and look at ourselves. When God brings about a thing into your life, when God brings about a circumstance into your life that will result in your hopes, your dreams, your desires, and your plans dying, is your response, behold, the slave of the Lord may be done to me according to your word. Is that your response? Because by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are forgiven, but you become a slave. And so in this life, you really have nothing that's your own. Everything belongs to God. Everything is done for God. So when these circumstances come in, is that your response? You have the response of Mary. In the face of potential suffering, an alienation because what God is doing in your life, do you step back and say, God, why? Or do you say, behold, the slave of the Lord may be done to me according to your word? It's an important question. Because how you answer when those moments come in reveals a whole lot more than what you profess to believe with your mouth. All of us in this room have better doctrine than Mary did. And yet Mary has greater submission than probably all of us would. Mary saw herself as a slave. See, you don't need to know lots of things, but you do need to know some things and be willing to die and live for them. One of those is what it means to truly be a follower of Jesus. Those who are saved become slaves. And so you accept what the Lord brings into your life with humility and submission. What are you struggling with? What is it that perhaps God has brought into your life at this moment? What is it that God has asked of you? If you've truly bent the knee, repented of your sin, trusted in Christ, been forgiven, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and will be with him for all eternity. Is there anything God can ask of you that would be too much? The answer is no. It would do us well to memorize that response in verse 38 and to say out loud to the Lord in prayer, when the circumstances come in, behold, the slave of the Lord may be done to me according to your word. That is how Jesus lived. Jesus as an incarnation took upon flesh and no matter what it was asked by the father, Jesus saw himself in complete submission to the will of the father. May be done according to the will of my father, may be done according to the will of the father unto death. What we see in Mary imperfectly, we see in Christ perfectly. And in Christ, our response has to be the same as hers. Mary is a beautiful, powerful, shining example of faithfulness, humility, submission. She is not to be venerated. 
She's not our source of grace. She's an example of how to respond to God's grace. She wasn't free from sin. She recognized her sin and responds accordingly to the grace God gives her, a sinner. She's not our mediator. She trusts in God and the Spirit of God who mediates for her. She did not give Gabriel permission. She submits to the will of God. And she too will look at her son and his life. And it says she will store these things in her heart. Like Mary, you and I are recipients of God's grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And like Mary, therefore, having received such a great grace of God, our response must always be, Behold, a slave of the Lord may be done to me according to your word. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you in the powerful name of the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, you, you do the things we least expect, the things we would never imagine. We would think that you would bring redemption, that you would bring the incarnation of your Son through someone of royalty, of prestige, of power, of influence, but you chose a small, unknown peasant girl, young in age, to remind us, Lord, that you work through those who are humbled before you. Guard our hearts from ever looking down on those who we think are are below us because you delight in those. Help us understand this woman you chose properly and let us truly appreciate who she is and what you use her to do. We pray for all of those that have had or do have an unbiblical understanding of Mary, the mother of Christ. Give us wisdom as we engage in those conversations, Lord, that we would do so with truth and with compassion. I pray for anybody perhaps in this room, Lord, who still holds to an unbiblical understanding of Mary. I pray that at this moment they would see the unbiblical error of their ways, that they would repent and trust in the true Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, as their mediator, as their advocate, as the hope of the resurrection. And Lord, I hope that you would work in us. We pray that you would work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit to see ourselves as slaves and that our response always would be to you, behold, the slave of the Lord may be done to me according to your word. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you in your grace and glory saved us. We ask now that you would strengthen us by your spirit to respond as we all. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.